I'm Kate Daniels. We are living in a challenging time with the feeling of a lot of crises around us. Dr. Robin Hanley-Defoe is a scholar with two decades of teaching and research experience, along with lived experience, surviving a car crash into a river in winter, to being the mother of three teens. Her new book, Stress Wisely, How to Be Well in an Unwell World, is a great tool and companion for us and our journey. Dr. Robin Hanley-Defoe, good morning. Thank you so greatly for being with us today. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. I am really just so, so greatly impressed by who you are, the work that you're doing, the way that you share it with the world in so many ways, uh, and really in a what I consider at this point really a, a very short life, and yet you have all this wisdom. And I think the title of your new book, Stress, How to Be Well in an Unwell World, Stress Wisely, that is, uh, really says so much too, because wisely, wisdom, all of that is just so critical for us. And you share this wisdom for us so succinctly in this book. Oh, my goodness. Well, thank you for that kind feedback. And, you know, it's so important to me and then the work that I do is to make some of the concepts that we know from the research really accessible. So that way persons can see how can I put things that we know in the research to be sound and true? How can we braid those into our lives so we can actually start feeling better while we are managing these very full lives and and different kind of situations we find ourselves in? And that is so critical because, oh, you know, thinking even perhaps just two decades ago, there was just so much about, you know, you have to be able to do it all, particularly with women, being able to be the best at everything. You can manage it, they all say. And and yet here we are today and the world has accelerated into this, oh, just overwhelming kind of situation in so many ways. And, And you're coming to us and saying... We need to get this in perspective. As you say, you're wanting to share this with us, and you do so th- through your teaching. That That's one amazing way, and your students are certainly fortunate to have you uh, it really sharing that insight and knowledge with them. Oh, well, thank you again for that. And, you know, especially when I think about it, and you're so right, the, the complexity of our lives has, you know, dramatically changed. And it's not to say that persons in previous generations didn't have stressors and challenges. What was quite interesting, though, in those situations is that they were they were quite more, they were more visible and they were more kind of community based where people would, you know, rally together. They would kind of understand these ebbs and flows that would happen in society. And I think what's happened as we've kind of leaned towards more of this kind of like survival of the fittest, like we have to figure it out. And we're kind of trying to kind of carry the weight of these big lives with just our two hands And it's almost as if like the rules have changed somewhat. And what I often share, especially with young women in the workforce, is is this idea like when, when women started to have more rights outside of the home and their identities shifted, It's quite interesting because at that time, Kate, it wasn't as if we said, okay, so now women are going to start to have more of a role outside of the home, start becoming, you know, contributing, you know, really big contributors in the external world in terms of, you know, these jobs and, and, you know, being in some cases, we see like the primary earner in a lot of these families. And we never gave up anything in that exchange. And what I mean by that and what my students really connect with is this idea when we got all these new rights and these opportunities over the last few decades, 
We didn't exchange anything and said, okay, in exchange for this new role and identity that we're going to hold, I'm going to give up having being the one responsible for cleaning the house. And I'm going to give up the responsibility for, you know, birthday presents or planning social gatherings. Like we're going to have to like renegotiate these rules. That didn't happen. So, so many women especially are just drowning in all this invisible labor that they do while they're living full professional lives at the same time. And and that's that piece where it's just not sustainable, Kate. We've we got to find a different way to show up in this work. Precisely. And that's where you, through your own experiences, but also, of course, through study, because you really... Uh, or a master at psychology, uh, again, something that's come from your own life, and you are able to like chunk it down for us and give us yeah. steps so that we can really understand it better. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the intention. Like, I think it's really great that we know kind of the theories and some of the whys, but what does that what does that actually look like every day? And that's something that in the book, we really tried to be able to like help people discern what is it that makes sense? What is it that I need to make sure that I'm making matter most matter most? And how can I build these lives where I can feel grounded and steady and happy and healthy, while also still being able to meet all of these other expectations and wishes that I have for myself, for my family, for my community. So yes, very much in Stress Wisely, we talked about how do we how do we essentially get radical clarity of what matters most and how do we work towards building practices and habits that are going to make that possible for us. And you know, as you are saying this, it just, again, I I get some clarity about it that um, having it all sometimes means stuff. You know, we think we have to have all these things around us, but that weighs us down and really clouds things for us. So I think we could, there are so many solutions and not having that kind of accumulation of even just stuff to help us to, to get to a better place in our life. Oh, absolutely. And I could share with you one of the areas in like research we're actually exploring right now, which is so encouraging, I think, especially for people with like with young children. Um, and it speaks to what you were just speaking about is when we asked children, like little ones, we asked them, when do you feel the most loved? Like, when do you feel the most loved? What feels the best? Children shared with us. The number one response we heard back, Kate, was when my grown up plays with me. Hmm. They feel love the most when their grown-up plays with them. So it isn't the, you know, magical, perfect birthday parties. It isn't necessarily these big, massive holidays or these trips or all these extracurriculars or, you know, that tidy, perfect bedroom. Children feel the most loved, even in all that noise and chaos, when their grown-up plays with them. They get down on the floor and they play, whether it be, you know, coloring blocks, reading, just spending time with them when they're present. So I love that because to me that feels like this big, beautiful permission slip as mm-hmm. parents that we can give ourselves that a lot of those other things, they feel very important, but it might not necessarily match with what it is we're trying to cultivate in our family systems, which is people feeling loved and seen and accepted for who they are. And if that's what kiddos share with us that, hey, that's the best thing, that again, takes a lot of the pressure off that like, hey, you know what, I might not be able to do all of these other things and maintain this outward appearance of everything being okay, I can just focus on showing up and being present in the moment with my children because that's when they feel the most seen and loved and connected. And 
sometimes that might be challenging because we have demands on our time. But when we think about how critical that is to this child to give them some of our time and then how that helps in their development and their overall good health. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think what's also really important, especially with the fullness of our lives, Right now, what we're seeing is so many, you know, parents and supporters, and it's, you know, not just about children, but even for our partners and our community members, is that we're so busy that we're, we're saying whatever we put our focus and our energy on, we're saying those are the most important things. So if I don't have time to, like, you know, show up for a family meal, for example, or if I don't have time to, like, get outside and go for a walk on my lunch hour, I'm saying essentially everything else seems more critical and more important. So we're actually even modeling for the next generation where we should be putting our priorities and putting our energy. So again, finding strategies to simplify it where, yes, of course, the work still has to get done, but can we do it in a way that's actually sustainable and really cultivates this idea of like really, you know, life with work balance where it's like, yeah, we want to work hard, but we want to make sure we get to play hard still and recover hard because that's going to make a big difference to our overall wellness and also that for next generation as well. And if there was ever a time that the young generation needed to have that modeled, uh, every generation feels that. But I think we're in just such a place, I'm going to call crisis, that uh, what we can learn and the simplifying of life, I think, is key there. We're going to help them move forward. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the idea with Stress Wisely is also embracing Kate, the idea that stress is inherent to the human mm. experience. We can't get through life without experiencing stressors. It's in our very nature. And that's actually how we have drives. Like stress is part of life. So what we're really thinking about is, again, that idea about that wise component to it. How are we able to manage it in such a way that we're we're coping, we're feeling like okay in the middle of the storm? Because I'll share with you one of the patterns that we saw and we talked a lot about in the book and I think a lot of us have a kind of a tendency to fall into this trap. It's the when-then trap. And it's like, okay, when this busy season is over, then I'm going to take care of myself. You know, when I can just finally, like, maybe repair this one relationship with my extended family member, then I'm going to enjoy family holidays again, right? We just create all of these, like, artificial, like, when this gets done, then I'm going to be happy. Or, you know, when I lose that last 10 pounds, then I'm going to feel comfortable in my clothes. And what happens is we're just kind of always in that place of chasing and we're just never quite feeling settled in the moment. And one of the kind of invitations we think about and we weave it within the book is talking about how do we create moments and like micro habits and behaviors so we can be okay right now. It's not this like we have to cross this finish line and then we can feel well and then we'll have time to devote to our wellness it's the idea about our behavior that we do each and every day is going to help us start to feel better in the moment. And the beautiful thing about human psychology is when we feel better, we choose better, we be better, we do better when we're in that place of feeling grounded and present and steady. Part of that, um, I guess it should have been no surprise, but you you introduce once again, or, you know, we've heard this before about having a, a more organized or a simplified or cleaner space that yes. really adds so much to our life and takes away some stressors along the way. 
Oh, absolutely. And actually, what we did in Stress Wisely were kind of identify what we call like the realms or the pillars. And so often we think about wellness. We put a lot of emphasis on physical health, right? The absence of disease, sleep, nutrition, and exercise. And that is a huge component to our wellness, absolutely. But if we have our sleep, nutrition, and exercise all dialed in, but our emotional health isn't in check, that stuff doesn't actually matter as much. And even we notice that, for example, like when people have their environment, like the spaces, whether it be their home or even their car or where they live in terms of like commuting to work or, you know, just wherever you, you know, wherever you find yourself, what we learned is that like when those places are, you know, in a place of like order and ease and you know where to find things and just you have that sense of flow, it actually helps us again make better choices. It allows us to feel better. So we behave in a way that's more in alignment with what we want to feel. And often as a starting point, Kate, we talk to people about this idea, what do you want to feel more of in your life? What would you like to feel less? of in your day. And when we talk about what we want to feel more of, people want to slow down. They want a little bit more ease. They want some more spaciousness. They want to be able to, you know, have that, you know, cup of tea with a loved one and just share, not always feeling like they're running behind or their calendars have them hostage. And so we really start to think about what is it that we want to feel more of and what are some ways, again, that we can simplify things in our life so it's more likely that we can make time for those things that matter most. So even again, when we think about our spaces, if we're in a space and let's say you're trying to relax at the end of the day, but your bedroom is completely chaotic. And what happens is that doesn't make us feel very settled. And what's quite interesting, we see Kate in the research that even the act of like putting things away and tidying things up, going through that motion actually starts to help us clear out some of the mess chatter some of the noise in our heads as we're cleaning we're actually processing other things thoughts and feelings and emotions through the day so that's actually we see this beautiful interconnectedness of our physical health our emotional health our environment and again also when we think about our roles our spiritual health all of those things really create a foundation for us to live well today and the the thing that, as you described that, I was just thinking about how we we are bombarded with so many ads and commercials of you need to have this to make your life better. And so we tend to believe that and, and pile these things on, but it has the reverse effect in most cases yeah. because we have this stuff and we don't even know what we have sometimes. Yeah, Kate, you're absolutely right. And we often talk about there's two big ideas there. The first one is this idea that like, we need to, I believe, need to stop outsourcing our joy. Mm. Because right now, joy, we like are expecting other people to like kind of bring joy to us or bring, you know, bring those positive feelings towards us. Or if we buy this, then we'll be happy. So there's a lot of us who are really in that pattern of outsource, outsourcing our joy. That if you just buy that one, one more thing or that car or that, that house, that purse, that backyard, like whatever it is, that will then make you feel happy. But the reality, as we know, and we've known this for like people have been writing about this for forever, it seems like that joy, that internal sense of peace and joy, that's something that comes with within. That's not something we can ever buy or kind of track down. And the other thread there as well, Kate, is that idea that we will never have enough of what we do not need. 
And I, I talk to my teenagers about that so often because, you know, they'll make these purchases thinking that, you know, oh, I'm going to feel satisfied, right? If I get this new thing, I'm going to feel satisfied. I'm going to feel complete. Yet we will never have enough of what we do not need, which is why when you get those things or those things arrive that you bought online or whatever the case may be, it doesn't feel very satisfying. Like buying it felt good, but when you get it, you realize, well, that's okay, but maybe it's not as wonderful or great as I thought it was going to be. And the reason that is the science behind that, Kate, is actually that the part of our brain that wants something is actually a different part of our brain that feels satisfaction. So what we're actually doing is kind of working against our biology there versus learning how to find that inward sense of I am okay, I'm not going to outsource my joy. I'm responsible for the quality of the feelings that I'm going to feel. Oh, that is an incredible insight, that realization that it is two different parts of our brain. I I yeah. certainly can relate to the fact that, you know, what you just described happens. So understanding that is is so insightful. I hope everyone gets to feel that because there's so much solution for living a, a, a more a calm, joy-filled life when we do yeah. that. Absolutely, absolutely. And what's so fascinating, again, I sometimes people will share with me that, oh, you know, I feel bad because, you know, I just want to buy these things or, you know, have those treats. Like, you know, I just want to, you know, I just want to feel good again, which we, that there's no shame in wanting to feel good. It's just understanding that when we like buy that thing, what's actually happening is we're getting like a hit of dopamine, right? It's a, it's the, um, you know, it's that digital dopamine. We get our brains will release this hormone for the moment makes us feel good. And what's amazing is we can get dopamine by online shopping and we also can get dopamine by like going outside for a walk or like spending some time with a loved one, having a good conversation with a colleague. So it's just understanding like where we actually get the, you know, where we can find alternative ways to get some of the feelings that we're really craving. And again, I think right now, especially in the last wee while, Kate, we've seen people are feeling very disconnected. And people are feeling very lonely. Like we are seeing loneliness at such high levels across all different age groups, even all the way from like early years to elderhood. People are feeling disconnected, like something's missing. They're feeling lonely. So it makes complete sense that people are trying to fill their days with, you know, things and materials just to try and feel again. And the invitation is to just recognize that, yeah, it's okay to be lonely. It's okay to want to feel good. Let's find the things that actually are going to really help us feel good that are going to be sustainable, right? Because we might feel good in the moment, you know, buying that thing or having that one thing come our way. But if we want genuine, really like legacy to some of these good feelings, we know that those can actually be cultivated. And we talk about this in the book as well, Kate, about the forces of recovery, like sometimes we actually need solitude. We just need a little bit of time for stillness, for some quiet. Other people respond really well to connection, like real conversations with people, not those surface conversations, you know, like the, how are people really doing? And, and you know, we often talk about that as, for example, when I'm working with my team, we do a tendency of doing that kind of round table check-in in our team meetings where we say, how are you? And everyone gives their answers, fine, good, busy, tired. <laughs> And then we go around the circle again and we ask, how are you really? And then we hear, 
I'm really, I'm really run down or I'm worried about my elderly relative or my kids going through something right now, or I haven't been feeling real this last few days. So what happens is this, there's these surface conversations that a lot of people have, but we need to have people, not everyone, not everyone gets this place in our lives, but we do need to have people where we can actually say like, this is how I am doing really. And the more that we get that authenticity and a wee bit of that vulnerability, we get connection and then all of a sudden the world feels a lot more manageable. We also know the other three forces of recovery, Kate, is nature, like being outdoors, are automatically starts to re-regulate a nervous system, the power of music. You know, we always talk about that you're one song away from feeling differently, finding that right, that music to meet your mood. And the last one is the power of gratitude. And what we see in the research where people really want to feel good, it's where they practice gratitude and what you appreciate will appreciate and that will grow and you can cultivate it and then people can start to have good feelings that last that aren't as as a lot of those feelings are right now for so many of us and thing about gratitude and I hope that most of us have read or heard that to, to some degree, at least, because I feel that it's just around me all the time. And, and you know, when we allow it, it just really enters our cells and we can live in this way because we can be grateful for many things, for things that it seem like, oh, no, that was so negative. But we can find something that has such value and, and that is good for us in it. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. And my gentle invitation around gratitude is even like a lot of times I hear people say, especially if they have privilege, um, you know, Robin, I feel bad that I, you know, had a bad day because I have a roof over my head. I have a job. I have food on my table. Who am I to feel like I'm having a bad day or a difficult mood or a hard emotion? And what's interesting with the gratitude conversation is you can have dual truth. Like you can appreciate your blessings and all of the things that you have available to you. And you're also allowed to have a bad day as well. And so one of the things that we often see is that sometimes we use gratitude as this like almost kind of like this paintbrush where we're painting over our stressors because it's like, who am I to have a bad day? Like I shouldn't feel bad. I need to so great, like so engage in gratitude practices because I'm so fortunate. And what we do see though, is sometimes that actually offers the opposite effect because we're not actually acknowledging that we're still we're still allowed to have bad days and we still have stressors. And the more that we have this more kind of kind of that again that dual truth understanding, we actually know that actually amplifies the benefits of gratitude. So that actually benefits the it really amplifies the benefits there, Kate. So instead of thinking of gratitude as like this just like surface practice where it's just like you know, I, I should, you know, I should just be grateful for everything and I have a roof and food. So that should be enough. Again, the real power of gratitude is holding both those lanes where we see like, yeah, I'm still struggling with some stuff. And thankfully, I'm well resourced and I'll be able to manage those things. So that's one of the things where we really see in the research gratitude has the most benefit for people. And that's why you, with your very sound and relatable way of communicating as you're doing this morning, as you do in the book, Stress Wisely, the, the stories and the language in such a way it's relatable. It's not scientific jargon and you know there's science involved of course but it's just again I guess it's the storytelling and and making it more manageable and understandable. 
Well, thank you for that. And again, that's always my intention and how I've approached my, my teaching practices for 20 years. Um, but and also with my writing and my research is, you know, it, I just want I just want it to be relatable. And to me, it's this idea that, you know, as a mother of three teenagers, I always say my children are my greatest teachers. Every time I think I understand something, they throw a curveball and I have to learn it over again or unlearn <laughs> something to be able to make space for the new knowledge. And so, you know, bringing in the stories about how I see these practices in my real, real everyday life, I think, is a way to really connect with people. Um, because at the end of the day, we're all trying, I believe, the best that we can do with the tools and the energy and the resources that we have. And I don't have the energy anymore at this point in my career to like to be able to kind of think of it like this is my professional writing and this is my personal life. Mm. To me, I want to braid it all together because that's where I've been able to find the most just deep sense of of purpose and making meaning when I can bring them together. And again, as I said, throughout the book, I love to be able to share the stories also from my own lived experience as someone who's navigated some very difficult seasons as somebody, for example, who dropped out of high school, somebody who struggled with learning disabilities with, as, a, as a grown woman with ADHD, um, and also has somebody who's navigated addictions. And what I think is so important is that we don't just put the spotlight on the parts that are, you know, like positive and it's like everything's going all right. A lot of the lessons that I share, those were very hard learned lessons that my family and I had to navigate. And part of my own processing and working with my lived experience is to be able to offer some of those insights for other families who might be going through difficult seasons. Because at the end of the day, the greatest gift I believe I can offer someone, Kate, is is the gift of hope and trusting that all will be well and better days are ahead and everyone's journey into wellness and to resiliency looks different, but just knowing, just knowing that we can have comebacks and we can change our story and there's ways that we can show up in our most, you know, stress-wise ways uh, to be able to, to see the good um, and be able to make sense of all of it. It's important. Absolutely. And just kind of, there's so much wealth of what you've just shared, but I'm going to just kind of focus in on yourself as as a teenager dropping out of school because of messages that were sent to you. And of course, you know, we're so young, we believe those and we think that's the way it is. But, you know, I think this offers a great deal of hope, that story for, for the student as well as the family and for the teachers as well on, on how to navigate and, and to, you know, really be better people and, and be encouraging and supportive. Yeah, well, thank you for that. And yes, it, uh, you know, I was, I was told from a very, very early age um, in the school system that I wasn't, I wasn't smart enough, that I was kind of wasting every teacher's time, um, and I wouldn't amount to anything. And what's quite fascinating in, in hindsight is it's recognizing that, you know, there was very little that people understood about, especially girls with ADHD, and that the behavior was just so, uh, like, atypical from what they would see around boy ADHD. And there is a gender difference with ADHD. And so at the time, teachers just some of my teachers just kind of didn't know what to do with me. And I know I'm not alone. I've spoken to so many women who shared similar stories that because our symptomology, how we behave in a classroom, how we learn is so remarkably different. um, A lot of us kind of got lost in that process. And what I also think is so important and what I share after I did drop out of high school, I did experience a pretty catastrophic car accident, which changed again the trajectory of my life. 
And education then became my tool to rebuild my life after it, Kate. So I I harbor no ill will towards (laughs) the education system because, yes, it very much contributed to me really struggling in some areas. But education also became the strategy and what I was able to use to build my comeback. And that is something that I'm very grateful for. And I hope, again, other people are able to find kind of comfort and even, again, hope knowing that our trajectories don't have to be linear. There's many, many different routes and ways to get towards our goals and to work towards our recoveries and to be able to be in a position when then we get to turn around and help the person behind us to say, hey, let's find it. Let's find another way to see if we can make this better for other people so they don't have to necessarily learn the lessons we learned the same way. Oh, absolutely. I I just love that. Once again, that the really sound reasoning, words of wisdom for us, which I think are underscored in Stress Wisely. So this is a way that this book can help us wherever we are in our journey. There's always that place to grow further. And uh, the book now widely available at all of our favorite book sources, correct? That is correct. Yes. And people can find you on on all the, the socials. And also, uh, you've presented a couple of TED Talks, which I think are always a fabulous way to learn and, and grow. And those are also available if we search for them uh, at your website as well. That's correct, yes. And, and again, I appreciate the opportunity to share this work. And again, I hope that can give a wee bit of encouragement so people know those better days are ahead. Well, I certainly feel it. I am so grateful for you, Dr. Robin Hanley-Defoe, and thank you so greatly for spending this time with us this morning. Well, thank you. I'm deeply honored, and I wish everyone all the best. And again, thanks for having me on the show. You're so welcome.